0: may it's, it's, it's alive i guess everyone's a time for a scare
2: them.
1: well hello oh, and welcome to cinema shock it's the <laughs> podcast exploring the <laughs> sorry, that popped todd way more than i thought it would he got way excited about that Uh, This is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm your other host, film historian Justin Bishop.
3: And I'm writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. With great podcast comes great researchability. Thank you for joining us for our very special first episode covering Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy.
2: Yeah, we're doing it. Woo! Here we, here we go. Here we are. We are what 80-something episodes in? I've lost count at this point. I have to every time I post one of these episodes on our uh our server to, to send out the new episodes. I have to double check which episode number it is. Cause I never know, <laughs> but we're around 82. I don't know. 81, 82. We're somewhere in there. And yeah. we're finally talking about some Marvel movies, uh, not <laughs> the MCU. That'll probably never happen, but right. of course the, <laughs> that would be a, that'd be a whole podcast on its own uh, oh. at this point. So uh, of course this is not our first foray into the world of comic book movies. If you're a long time listener, then you might remember that back when we first launched the podcast, Our second ever series covered Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, and uh, we did that. We were kind of throwing a bone to Todd when we did that one because we had spent like ten episodes talking about George Romero movies, and uh, (laughs) and I think Todd hated half of them. But uh, so we're we're doing that again. We uh, we're throwing Todd a bone again because he uh, he this most recent series he actually left the podcast, So, (laughs) so we decided we'd throw a. Throw a comic book series in there. Nah, we were always planning to do that. You know, when we when we did that Christopher Nolan series, though, we did that because, you know, Batman, I, if I'm not mistaken, would you call Batman your favorite comic book character, Todd?
3: Mm, or yeah. superhero? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's easy. Yeah, that, yeah, that's an easy one. Batman's definitely my favorite. Yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've got a Batman tattoo and a, um, I, I do, I have a Batman tattoo. I'm not allowed to show anybody anymore, (laughs) but if that, if that basically, uh, sets the bar of my level of fandom, (laughs) I
1: mean, based on where the tattoo is, that bar is pretty low. (laughs) based on the tattoo it's also batman and robin which we have not talked about so
2: that's true that's true yeah like batman like the joel schumacher batman and robin
3: right yeah i did like the the chris nolan batman but like the joel schumacher robin kind of together so it looks a little tribalish but
2: yeah i see okay interesting interesting choice todd so uh, <laughs> so we did get to talk about your favorite superhero. And now we're doing another series where we get to talk about Gary's favorite superhero.
0: Hey, Gary.
2: So uh earlier this year, when we did our Sam Raimi the Entertainer series, we did promise to all of our listeners that we'd be back to discuss Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. And uh we thought we were actually gonna do it a little bit later, but we decided to to bump it up in the schedule a little bit. So now it is time for us to fulfill that promise. But This is not going to be a three-part series. It's going to be a four-part series because uh, before we get into the stories behind those movies, I think we need to discuss the long road that Spider-Man had to travel to make it to the big screen because it is a pretty fascinating journey and it's one that spans like literal decades. So we're going to do something that's kind of a first here on Cinema Shock. Uh, We're going to devote an entire episode, not to a single film, but to really every attempt to get Spider-Man on screen before Sam Raimi got a hold of the character. So here we are. Please join us on the road to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man.
0: Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes a Spider-Man. Long road. Getting from it. there to I here.
2: Gotta, I got to stop saying the road to anything because every <laughs> time I do. <laughs> it <makes me> <laughs> <about it.
0: laughs>
2: so what is it about Spider-Man that makes the character so enduring? I mean, Marvel's universe is populated with a lot of extraordinary characters. You've got gods and monsters, super soldiers and mutants. But by pretty much every metric, the most popular character in Marvel's stable is a dorky teenage kid from Queens, New York. And that's kind of the key, I think. Peter Parker is just a kid who just so happened to get bit by a radioactive spider. He didn't get his powers from, from some you know, secret government experiment. He isn't from an alien planet. He wasn't born with super abilities. He's not a billionaire vigilante. He's just a guy. And I think that's part of the appeal of the character. The reason that Spider-Man is so beloved is because when he's not in his costume, he's just an ordinary guy who has ordinary problems like the rest of us. When he's Spider-Man, he might be fighting Doc Ock or the Green Goblin. But when he's Peter, he's dealing with girl problems. He's stressed about money. He's getting bullied at school. He's imperfect. And people around the world love him because, you know, they can relate to that imperfection.
1: And that's a whole big part of the philosophy in general with Marvel through through the years. Um, I was watching a Stan Lee interview from the 70s, and he was already talking about the same thing. Like they were asking him on a talk show he was on, like, what well, sets you guys apart from Superman and Batman or, you know, the the DC folks. And he basically said quote, our characters have real issues. Spider-Man can get an ingrown toenail, or his Aunt May won't let him go out without his galoshes on. He tears his costume up and he's got to figure out how to fix it. All things that aren't perfect. Our characters have feet made of clay. They're imperfect like us. And what's funny is I started doing that as a gag. It just kept me awake when I was writing stuff. But the college kids who started reading it, they loved it. And they looked at it all as satire on their regular lives. So after years of doing things with other characters, I realized... The world is so funny now that you can just present things as they are, and everybody will just appreciate it as satire.
2: Yeah, and he also, you know, famously sets Spider Man specifically is in New York City. It's not, it's not in Gotham or it's not in Metropolis. It's not in these made up cities. It's in a city that a lot of the people who read Spider Man recognize. It's a real place that you can recognize landmarks and recognize real people. And I think that setting, especially
1: as we get into when we get into the Sam Raimi movies, the setting in New York is a vital part of that character you saying that actually reminds me now I've been like, uh, I have a PS five and I never played the Spider-Man game. I think it was from four, not that it matters, yeah. but anyway, I've been playing it and I am obsessed with that game right now. And uh, it is so freaking fun. But yeah. part of the, what is fun to me is that it is legitimately Manhattan Island and you are swinging through Manhattan Island. And just the swinging mechanics alone on that game are just fun. Like, and you get to do like, like the old Tony Hawk games, you can do tricks and stuff in the air yeah. and, And like you're just swinging through and you could find all the landmarks exactly where they would be and that just makes it awesome and like you you get excited you're like i gotta go climb to the top of the empire state building yeah (laughs) because why wouldn't you i mean if you had that power of course you would try to do that right another thing that
2: helps spider-man be more relatable than many other comic book characters is the mask that he wears because under the mask, you know he could be anybody
3: yeah I sorry to cut you off there I um, I remembered a you know speaking about Spider-Man, uh, one of the artists who famously worked on Spider-Man Todd McFarlane actually in the commentary for um, spawn in 1997 was actually talking about working for the big company Marvel and he actually said that he had in mind a scene where there's a mugging and Spider-Man uh, swoops in, webs the guy up, and the guy that he saves uh, uses a, uh, a racial slur about his attacker. And then Spider-Man pins the guy, the the guy he just rescued, pins him against the wall and points to his mask and says, what color do you think I am under the underneath this mask? Huh, interesting. And yeah, there. and Marvel Comics has always been really good because things take place in a real world. They've always been able to kind of, Inject more relevant issues into those uh, into those stories.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Spider-Man kind of like you're saying, he kind of transcends race, you know, Uh, a black kid or an Asian kid or a Latino kid who grows up loving Spider-Man, they can put on a Spider-Man costume at Halloween and that kid becomes Spider-Man.
3: Yeah. And let's uh, let's not forget that scene in Into the Spider-Verse, which I I was I found myself sitting in the theater watching that movie. And of course, Stan Lee is there behind the counter working, Mm -hmm. working the counter. And I was just like, I am not about to cry in this Spider-Man movie. (laughs) (laughs) But it was kind of cool, like hearing him say those things of like, it always fits, you know, Mm-hmm. That anybody can wear just what you were just saying. Anybody can wear that costume and could be Nicolas
2: Spider-Man. Cage, could be a pig. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Of course, not all of these attributes have been a part of Spidey's on-screen adventures over the years. Uh, In fact, I would argue that it wasn't until Sam Raimi got a hold of the character that we had an on-screen Spider-Man that truly felt like the character that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko created more than 60 years ago. Uh, But it certainly was not for lack of trying. Uh, As we'll discuss over the course of this episode, it was a long and winding road to finally get Spider-Man onto the big screen. Don't you fucking do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I could see it in your
3: eyes. I could see <laughs> it.
1: I actually was going to do it if he didn't do it this time.
3: <laughs> How many ways can we fuck with Justin? Uh,
2: <laughs> so, Stanley and Steve Ditko, they they came up with the idea for Spider-Man in 1962. Now, as we all know, Stanley was prone to, let's say, a bit of embellishment. What? No, come on. uh, The story, the origin story for how he created Spider-Man, it's changed a little bit here and there over the years. But the way it usually goes is that while brainstorming ideas for a new comic book hero, Lee saw an insect crawling across the wall in his office. Sometimes when he tells that story, it's a spider. Other times it's a fly. But regardless, he liked the idea of a hero that could, you know, stick to surfaces, walk across walls, uh, maybe shoot some webs. So it goes over a few possible names. Insect Man, uh, Mosquito Man, Fly Man—those all suck. Uh, he hated all of those names because they're they're terrible. But when he landed on the name Spider Man, something like kind of clicked. It kind of worked for him. So he excitedly ran the pitch, ran to pitch the concept to his publisher, a guy named Martin Goodman, who quickly told him, Stan, that's the worst idea I've ever heard." <laughs> and, and he went out to explain why he's like first of all you can't make the guy a spider people hate spiders right gary people hate spiders that is true it's odd second <laughs> I, I, spider-man's my favorite and i hate spiders so second of all he's like it can't be a teenager because teenagers can only be sidekicks and third he can't have personal problems because he's supposed to be a superhero and he actually asked Stanley, he said don't you know what a superhero is <laughs> now obviously stanley knew what a superhero was because by, this wasn't like his first rodeo by this point in his career he had already created the fantastic four and the incredible hulk uh yeah. and lee was pretty confident in his idea for spider-man but he kind of left that meeting feeling kind of defeated but truth be told goodman had a point about teenagers in comics
3: a lot of times uh you know some a uh, couple of famous examples but it lends to Marty's uh argument there you had Bucky you had Superboy Aqualad Wonder Girl and and uh and I you know not to take the wind out of yourselves but like the kids in Archie they it's yep. all teenagers but none of them are really none of them are really the big main draw the big headliner the you know the big name on the marquee
2: I mean except for Archie but those aren't superhero comics you know you've got right, that, right. that's pretty much <laughs> where you saw teenagers in comics was in in the pages of Archie or you know, you mentioned all these sidekicks. I think the most prominent was Robin, the Boy Wonder in the Batman course, comics. But he didn't have his own comic book at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he would later, but he didn't at the time. At the time he was just like this kid who hung out with Batman, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um But Lead. in his underwear. In his underwear. Yeah, totally normal <laughs> for a single billionaire to have a, a a boy running around in his underwear.
1: Bruce Epstein. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and that's all the time we have on cinema shock thanks for joining us
2: uh, but Lee believed in his concept so when he when the opportunity presented itself he took one final chance to get the character in front of readers you see Marvel uh at this time they, they had planned to pull the plug on an anthology comic that they'd been publishing called amazing fantasy due to the book's uh terrible sales numbers it was a flop but Lee and Ditko convinced Goodman To let them insert a spider-man story into the book's final issue uh, which was amazing fantasy number 15. the two came up with an origin story for a mild-mannered high school student named peter parker who gets bit by a radioactive spider while on a class trip which instantly gives him the powers of the arachnid lee later admitted that he included the spider-man story in amazing fantasy just to kind of get it out of his system but A few months after the book was published, the sales figures crossed Goodman's desk, and Marvel executives were shocked to learn that the Spider-Man issue was the company's bestseller that month. Not just the bestseller of Amazing Fantasy, the best Marvel title that month, period.
1: Uh, Audiences clearly loved the character, and of course, Marvel loved selling comics. So My parents, apparently, they didn't fucking buy it. It was the bestseller, but not to anybody I know that could have passed that down to me. That would have been nice, right?
2: (laughs) Uh, so a monthly Spider-Man series was uh, ordered, and a legend was born. And yeah, that that amazing Fantasy Fifteen. I, I looked it up. I was curious what that was worth these days, and it is obviously it's one of the most valuable comics of all time. Of and uh, there was actually a pristine copy of it that was sold in 2021 for 3.6 million dollars, which makes it the most expensive comic book sale ever. Wow. Like that that comic God. two years ago. Ugh. Can you imagine paying 3.6? Who- $3.6 million for a comic book
1: that you're Ugh. never going to read.
2: You can read uh, it yeah. on your iPad. Well, you I mean, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. That comic <laughs> that you're never going to physically open. Right. It's just going to put it in a glass case somewhere. Or yeah, just to say that you have it,
2: <laughs> you know. But anyway, Spider-Man did get his own, his own series. It was called The Amazing Spider-Man. That was in March of 1963, and it quickly became a comic book sensation. So, of course, it wouldn't take long before the character's popularity led to an attempt to bring the character to screens both large and small. After years establishing themselves as a powerhouse in the comic book world, by the 60s and 70s, Marvel was eager to begin licensing its characters, hoping to expand them into other mediums, whether it be television or you know cartoons, movies, whatever. And because of their eagerness, they would listen to pretty much every pitch sent their way, which uh, some of which were, quite frankly, kind of insane. Like there were some <laughs> dumb and weird ideas that were sent their way, but they were like, you know, let's hear them all and see what sticks. But the first time the audience has got a glimpse of the wall crawler on screen, it was in a medium that kind of made total sense uh, animation, you know, pretty close to doing it. It's a moving comic book, basically. Oh, yeah. Spider Man starred in his own animated series, uh, which ran from 1967 to 1970 for a total of 52 episodes. Uh, that series, uh, the first season was produced by a company called grand Trey lawrence animation which went bankrupt not long after season one was completed and then the second and third season were produced by kranz films under the supervision of legendary animator ralph bakshi that yeah 90s. i saw I,
3: oh go ahead yeah i wasn't i wasn't familiar with a bunch of uh ralph's work but just if, in case the name doesn't ring a bell to anybody uh wizards in 1977 the lord of the rings movies in 1978 american pop in 81 uh, Fire and Ice in 83, and then uh, The Mighty Mouse, The New Adventures uh, TV show in 87. He was responsible for Cool World, the movie, in uh, 1992. And then there was an HBO series called Spicy City in 1997.
2: Not a single mention of Fritz the Cat, Todd? Not Well, I was going to leave that <laughs> for you, man. <laughs> I
3: didn't want to take all of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, makes-
2: I, um, I really want to do a Ralph Bakshi series, on on this Ooh, series one day that that's, that's what fun. that's that's been one of my dream series to do on here since the beginning of this podcast nice Grant's films would later go on to produce some of bakshi's more well-known films like Fritz the Cat and like Heavy Traffic but at the time they were mostly known for producing low-budget animated TV shows uh, Steve Krantz, who was the head of that company, had worked on uh, the one and only season of the Mighty Thor animated series before moving on to Spider-Man.
1: Uh, just to pause on the 60 Spider-Man for a second. That series is still kind of fun to watch. I've been finding a lot of it online. and I don't think a lot of it's on YouTube. It's on that other thing. What is it? Like Daily Motion? You can find yeah. like that series. Some ep- episodes are obviously better than others. It's basically it seems like Peter Parker played by William Shatner. Or that's like what he sounds like a little bit. <laughs> what he webs something up? It's got that. Uh, this gets the Spider-Man seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, they also u-
2: reused a lot of it was like very low budget, especially in its second and third season when Krantz took over uh, and they reused a lot of background elements from another show that, that that Ralph Bakshi was working on. They would just reuse the backgrounds and stuff from that. Oh
1: yeah. I was going to mention that, um, that, that voice, by the way too, it's probably just, I was going to say that the acting might just be kind of at that era kind of thing. Uh, right. Spidey's voice by a guy named uh, Paul S- souls in that uh, mm-hmm. who's a prolific voice actor. He, actually just passed like a couple of years ago in like 2021 at like 90 years old and he was working oh, all the way up till that wow. people in the u.s probably know him best as Hermy the rudolph the red-nosed reindeer elf you really know? <laughs> out of yeah. town <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> that wow. same guy. how about that uh, but he definitely had like hundreds of roles, and uh that shows everything like a kid would want at that time. Though it's got all the great like Rogues Gallery people in it, like Green Goblin, mm-hmm. Doc Ock, Rhino, Sam Man, Mysterio, Electro, the Lizard, all that. It's it's fun to just throw on and leave on in the background, and and like what Justin was talking about, there's like a lot of quirky fun stuff too, like. So because they had like such a low budget, only like they could, literally couldn't afford to web his whole body. Like only the mask is webbed; the rest of it's like solid colors. Yeah, be too uh, hard to animate. Yeah, and uh, so the rest of them, yeah, is just stays plain and uh, and they reuse animations of even him, like changing clothes or swinging through the city, like mm-hmm. over wow. and over again. You just start recognizing it. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of it is they fucked up in the first season and uh couldn't fix it so they just rolled with it but they uh accidentally made the spider on a suit only have six legs instead of eight legs (laughs) so (laughs) for the whole season for the whole season they they fix it in in seasons two and three but then they still reuse the footage of him swinging through the city and stuff like that (laughs) so it kind of jumps back and forth yeah i remember being a kid and this makes me old but like when my mom would take me to the video store and let me pick out something to rent like these were were something i rented uh Fairly often. Oh, yeah? I yeah. mean, these days, it's probably
2: most people know it for the theme song because it's, it, I mean, of all the projects we're going to talk about, uh, Spider-Man related uh, movie and TV projects, the Spider-Man theme song from that 60s TV show is the most famous and yeah. is kind of has kind of become the official Spider-Man theme song. Uh, And also all of the memes. There's a ton of memes out there. I mean, you know, the one of like the three Spider-Mans pointing at each other, but there's also ones with like Rhino and stuff that that uh, images from that series are a big source for for memes these days. So you've probably (laughs) seen some screenshots from Spider-Man from this
1: series and maybe didn't even know exactly where they came from. But this is where they came from. That that song, I was I was going to save this for a minute from now, but that that To many, it's cheesy, but it's catchy as hell. It sure is. Um, It's written by Paul Francis Webster and Bob Harris. Uh, And it's, to me, is synonymous, like you said, with with Spider-Man as anything else about him now. To keep it movie related and give you a little background, Paul Francis Webster is a lyricist. Uh, He's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I think he was like the most successful british songwriter in the 50s uh wow. multiple time oscar winner oh. he won the academy award for best original song and uh 53 for secret love from calamity jane and 55 from love as a many Splendored thing 65 from the shadow of your smile from the sandpiper uh he was nominated 13 more times than that i think he's like third in the ranking for most times nominated or something. Wow. Yeah, so and this he, is he, probably
2: he, the most well-known thing he's ever written is Spider-Man, probably,
0: song. right?
1: <laughs> and uh, Bob Harris was a composer uh from New York City. His other biggest claim to th- fame was uh, in 62 he uh did the main theme for Stanley Kubrick's Lolita.
2: Oh wow. And, uh oh. so
1: yeah, it's it, it. song's been covered like a million times, most famously, mm-hmm. probably the Ramones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like Michael Buble, Aerosmith, the Distillers, everybody. Homer Simpson. Done, Homer Simpson has done it <laughs> with Spider Pig. Uh, <laughs> but I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody's left it out in the movie world of Spider-Man. Uh, certainly not Sam Raimi. He will not no. forget about it. Not so, at all. It's, yeah, you it's know as he, much of a lore. as You know, as anything, Sam
2: Raimi you know. grew up watching that show. <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, so this
2: was not Krantz's only attempt to produce a Spider-Man project, Steve Krantz. So a few years later, 1975, he had the idea to produce a Spider-Man feature film. This would have been the very first Spider-Man feature film, their very first attempt to make a Spider-Man feature film. Uh, He described his his version of a Spider-Man movie as a musical fantasy picture when he pitched the idea to Stan Lee. And his dream casting for the role of Peter Parker would have been either Mick Jagger
1: or Elton John. Uh, no if you web, his... me <laughs> web me up, me up, baby. I was, I'm just thinking, of just, hold on, what is? else? me closer, tiny spider. <laughs>
3: nice.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, oh, man. Gary Im-
3: sings the hits. <laughs> Improv King
2: Gary Horn. <laughs> but he no- he noted in his letter to Stan Lee when he was making this pitch, he's like, hiring either of these guys would lead to a huge departure from the source material because this is a quote from the from that letter. In the comic book Spider-Man doesn't sing or dance. And I'm really glad he decided that he needed to include that bit of information in a letter to Stanley, <laughs> like, but just in case you didn't know, Stan. <laughs> Honestly, I could see Elton John more as a Doc Ock than than uh, than Peter Parker. He looks like, like Doc Ock. He looks like <laughs> Doc Ock. They have uh, the, the same haircut in the '90s, you know. Yeah, and the uh, glasses. And stuff? Yeah, like, you exactly. can see Elton John wearing. Um, those. Well, thankfully, this idea never got off the ground. But I do have to admit that I would have loved to see this.
3: And honestly, like knowing what happens in Spider-Man three, I think that would have been worth seeing, like (laughs) (laughs) seeing these guys, uh, one of these guys as Spider-Man, as opposed to what we got in Spider-Man (laughs) three. Is
2: that, is that a diss on emo Spider-Man?
3: Yes, absolutely. That, that,
1: that scene might be the most famous of the Spider-Man three scenes. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get to that in a few weeks. (laughs) So
2: while that version of Spider-Man would have been absolutely wild, uh, the character's first real on-screen success would only be slightly less odd. Uh, In 1978, the Tokyo-based Toei Company created their own live-action Spider-Man TV series. And let me tell you, it has to be seen to be believed. Uh, It. (laughs) <laughs> it really does uh it might sound like a sure deal today, but at the time Toei signing on to produce a Spider-Man TV series was a pretty risky move uh, at that time, Toei was mostly known for distributing anime and live-action manga dramas, although they had helped to Shepherd the uh the seminal tokusatsu series common writer earlier in the decade. But what really made this so risky for them was that in Japan at that time, Nobody really gave a shit about Spider-Man. And the guy who has to be credited, really, for helping to bring the character to Japanese audiences was an American named Gene Pelk. Uh, he lived in Japan with his wife. I think his wife was Japanese, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so,
2: so he lived there back in her home country, and he had been a fan of Marvel Comics for years. Uh, he calls Stanley his hero, and he recognized an untapped market. Japan was a country that loved comic books more than any other country, maybe in the world. They loved comic books, but they loved their own comic books. They loved manga. And American titles like the ones Marvel was producing were just not popular there.
3: Yeah. I think if you look at especially comics that were coming out around that time, there wasn't a real great balance of art versus words on the page. And basically, american comics were designed to be read whereas japanese comics uh japanese manga is designed to be uh looked at it's it's designed to be viewed it's designed to be felt it's a lot more Uh, action yeah tons of action big you know the the panels are you know bigger and contain you know so much more dramatic poses and action scenes and stuff like that so yeah, it's uh there was a big difference in the style, but yeah, that's probably the reason they didn't like ours. <laughs>
2: yeah. But Pelk also recognized that his kids love Japanese TV shows like Kamen Rider, despite not understanding the language. And he but they just like watching it. It was fun watching the action and stuff. So he saw the potential for a superhero like Spider-Man in a similar show. So he contacted Marvel. He calls him up, told him his idea, and they were kind of down to give it a shot. Remember, they're listening to every pitch that comes to them at this point. So they gave Pelt the go-ahead to pitch his idea to some Japanese studios. So Pelk takes his idea to Toei's executives and Toei was receptive to the idea, but they also knew that they would have to make some significant changes to the Spider-Man narrative if they wanted the show to be a success. They were going to have to add some elements to it that were more familiar
1: to fans of the tokusatsu shows that were popular with kids at the time. Not like kids, but, um, you know, it's like the similar to their take on pornography. Like, you know, (laughs) you get more tentacles from aliens uh, in vaginas and pixelated wieners. (laughs)
3: <laughs> which is important when you're trying to show that to kids
1: yeah you got to pixelate the wieners.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
2: so, uh so they made a few changes a few small changes instead of Peter Parker the uh the main character in the Japanese Spider-Man was a guy named Toki uh tokiwa Yamashiro who was played by Sh- uh Shinji Toto
3: yeah it, in fact uh sorry to butt in here but that special on disney plus that actually kind of covers just the japanese spider-man um it's really awesome to hear toto talk about uh he speaks very reverently about his experience with the character so Mm -hmm. anybody out there who um hasn't seen uh that special i think it's a 616 it's marvel
2: 616 it's the very first episode of marvel 616
3: yeah, it is really fantastic to hear this whole story of just the Japanese Spider-Man mm-hmm. in as much detail, especially with those uh interview segments with Toto. So with Toto and know.
2: with Gene Pelk, I mean Gene, they yeah, Gene yeah Pelk in it and and he gives a lot of like very interesting little tidbits in it. it's it's really good if you want to really dive into the Japanese Spider-Man uh but Yamashiro, this character, he wasn't a photographer for the Daily Bugle uh he was a motocross star. Uh, mm. In fact, there was no Daily Beagle. Uh, there was no J. Jonah Jameson. There was no Mary Jane Watson. There was no Green Goblin. There was no Aunt Bay. There Aunt, Aunt May. There's no Uncle Ben. There's not, none of those recognizable elements.
3: So, Justin, what you're saying is, what I'm hearing you say is that the only place Uncle Ben is safe is in Japan. Is that right? If by
2: safe you mean better for having never existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just eliminate him <laughs> a lot earlier. Yep. Like in the <laughs> womb. <laughs> So in place of these Spider-Man staples, the series was filled with genre elements that were more familiar to Japanese audiences. You had giant robots, bug-inspired villains, swords, ninjas, guns, a Spider-Man sports car that he drove around. It was called the Spider-Machine GP7.
3: And uh, (laughs) one one more fun little fact that uh, Spider-Machine GP7, the GP stands for Gene Pelk.
2: Well, yeah, that makes sense. He made it up. Yeah. I think it was his sign-off <laughs> when he was like a radio DJ or something. He he called That's himself right. GP. Yeah, yeah, so they just took it there. And then seven's just like a lucky number in Japan. So GP seven. Uh, it's course. a cool little car. Uh, you know, it, it is. is more efficient, honestly, getting around than swinging from buildings. Because what if you're in a place that doesn't have tall
3: buildings? Well, like a, fly, like a like a forest or so. or a or, a, or a, a mine where you or down
2: or downtown in any like small city. Like, what if you weren't in New York?
3: that's true yeah that's a good point I mean, you gotta like, have a, car a lot get of places to
1: swing. you get a flying car that you, or you just fly it right up the asshole of that robot so you can control it instead <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i mean if you watch the show and, and you can find
2: every episode of this on youtube by the way i would highly recommend doing it because it is a it's honestly a blast it's super fun uh, but nothing about the series plot remotely resembled the spider-man comics Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, you know what? Let's just read the plot synopsis from
3: Wikipedia. Do you want me to do it like Stan Lee?
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now I do. (laughs) Okay. Young motorcycle racer Takayu Yamashiro sees a UFO falling to Earth, a space warship named the Marveler. Takayu's father, Dr. Hiroshi Yamashiro, space archaeologist investigates the case, but is killed upon finding the spaceship. The incident also attracts the attention of Professor Monster and his evil Iron Cross Army, an alien group that plans to rule the universe. Takuya follows his father to the Marveler and discovers Gagira, the last surviving warrior of Planet Spider, a world that was destroyed by Professor Monster and the Iron Cross Army. Daria explains that he was hunting Professor Monster, but now needs someone to carry on the fight, and he injects Takayua with some of his own blood. The blood of a person from Planet Spider gives Takayua spider like powers. Daria then gives Takayua a bracelet that activates his spider protector costume shoots web lines and controls the Marvelous ship, which can also transform into a giant battle robot called Leopardon. Using his powers, Takiua fights Professor Monster's army and other threats to Earth under the name Spider Man.
3: <laughs> thank <laughs> you, well, Todd. Thank you, yeah, Stan. Available for parties bar mitzvahs corporate <laughs> so, uh...
2: That obviously doesn't sound anything like the Spider-Man that we know. Uh at
3: all. (laughs) uh,
1: I do
2: I do love the idea that the bad guy's name is just Professor Monster. Like if you're if your name is Professor Monster, you can't be a good guy. Like that. You're just you're doomed to be a to be a villain for your entire life.
1: It's Uh, like Doc Ock only choosing to do like I think I just need two arms. Two of the yeah. arms. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should go for a couple more. Yeah, at least, <laughs> no, nah, two's fine. Two's enough. Yeah, two's good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but uh, what did stay accurate was Spider-Man's powers. You know, he—you he, mentioned that the that bracelet gives him his costume, but also he can, the bracelet shoots webs, and he can he has a spider powers from that injection of blood, uh, and
1: the costume itself is almost an exact replica of the comic book costume. Yeah, And it, it, it pops out of that thing like a fucking inflatable or something and just like yeah. kind of just like zips <laughs> onto it. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, but one thing is for sure, Toei knew their
2: audience. This show quickly caught on with Japanese kids and ultimately produced a total of 41 episodes between 1978 and 1979. And of course, it helped to sell a ton of toys, which was always the main goal for any of Toei's shows. Uh, these series were really just advertisements for toys.
3: And if you look, like, over the years, like, with animation and uh, marketing, obviously, there's a a direct uh, influence back and forth. Like, a lot of Japanese animation was inspired by, you know, the stuff coming from Walt Disney. And then they got our Spider-Man. And then years later, in, like, the 80s and 90s, we see a lot of cartoons, a lot of big American cartoons that were basically just half-hour commercials for toys. And I'm talking about, like... G.I. Joe, Transformers, He-Man, and, you know, the rest. Well, just, yeah, I Stan mean,
1: Lee's a great marketer because like he he totally like in in an interview I saw with him where he's talking about the Japanese Spider-Man. I mean, that was one of the first things he said about it. He's just like, I just thought it was so cool, like the the giant robots and the swords and they would throw them and it would stick into things. <laughs> and I bet they sold so many toys. Yeah. I mean, you, the, the things that you're
2: that you mentioned, Todd, like Transformers and He-Man, they were really created. Well, He-Man especially was created as a toy line first. Yeah. And then they yeah. created the TV show literally to sell the toys. I mean, that's how yep. it was created. Uh, if you want more on that, I think we did an old series on the podcast. Maybe that'll show up on Patreon if we ever get our shit together. <laughs> get that on there. But I'm pretty sure we talked about that. Uh, but, you know, the show's popularity not it was not only not only helped to sell toys in Japan, but it really helped to turn Spider-Man into a global brand, which is very important to its story. Now, here's an extra little bit of trivia. If you've watched the show and if you haven't, again, I would highly recommend it because it's super fun. It's on YouTube. Uh, It is. Every episode is on YouTube. So if you've watched it, then That Marveler ship and the uh, Leopardon battle robot that we mentioned in that synopsis might look a little familiar to anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, The sales for that Leopardon toy, the toy of that that robot, they were so strong that Toei decided to use that concept again for another one of their series called Super Sentai. Super Sentai would end up becoming the most successful tokusatsu series of all time, and would become popular here in the U.S. when it was later released as the Power Rangers. Ah, so, that's the yeah.
1: Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the Mighty Morphin Power
2: Rangers. Sorry, that's the full title. Thank you, Gary. Uh, so, <laughs> without the uh, without the Japanese Spider Man, we'd have no Power Rangers, uh, and we also probably wouldn't have you know Transformers or Voltron or Hell Gun- Gundam Wing or any of these other shows that no. all that all kind of started oddly enough with I mean Kamen Rider came first but the giant robot thing seems to have come from Spider-Man
1: isn't that weird yeah Yeah, it's (laughs) wild that is weird (laughs) it would be interesting to explore that history but yeah that's that's crazy to think about that it that it had that much influence over there I know yeah for something that was even not even available to watch here in the
2: U.S. for for decades all right so here's a little extra little side story before we move on While the Japanese Spider-Man show was the first successful version of the character in live action, uh, technically the first actor to play a live action Spider-Man was a dancer named Danny Seagren. Seagren played Spider-Man on the children's TV show The Electric Company in a recurring segment called Spidey Super Stories, where the cast of The Electric Company uh, would play various roles. And each segment ran about five minutes. They did a total of 29 episodes produced between 1974 and 1977. And unlike other versions of Spider-Man, this version didn't actually speak out loud because, you know, the electric company was an educational show. Uh, so Spider-Man only communicated in speech bubbles
1: in order to encourage its young viewers to read. There, There is a narrator, though, that sounds a little like Morgan Freeman. It's not, unfortunately, but you did you look it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found some uh, some old video of him where uh, I think the one I watched uh, most recently he met the spoiler who. Uh, Tried to give someone a rubber. It's the guy glove who just ruins sandwich. movies.
0: No, he he, <laughs> he tried to
1: give someone a, a rubber glove sandwich. So it was a sandwich that had a literal rubber glove in it. And so Spider Man has to hunt hunt him down. And it's the spoiler. <laughs> and uh, so so what it does is it tries to make it more like a comic book. And it's like certain panels come to life basically. Uh, and yeah. so mm-hmm. so they'll like do stuff, and then it'll like go to the art, like actual art. One of the artists must have drawn it or something. But so they'll like do the stuff and like or like the spoiler gets on top of spider-man and is about to defeat him and the actors actually just stop moving but you can see them kind of shaking uh, yeah like they're just sitting there that like it's a comic panel and then it finally moves to the next panel which is actual drawing and stuff it's just it's real it's real weird it's got a new song too that i haven't heard reused it's like very disco of course uh, this was
3: 1974 um <laughs> before we move on gary um rubber glove sandwich, isn't that a sex move Jen taught you? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all the time we have uh, on To be Snapchat. fair, like, I taught her. Uh, okay. So you
2: know.
1: Or we we
2: collabed. Yeah. We collab. on
3: that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'm sure you're asking yourself. Wait, isn't this episode supposed to be about Spider-Man on the big screen and we're doing all this talk about TV shows? Uh, well, I promise we're getting there. This is all we're on a journey here. This is the road to Spider-Man. So, you know, you, this it, is we're, and <laughs> there's a lot of detours.
3: A, yeah. And it's a long road getting from there to oh, here. Oh, boy. There it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks, everybody.
2: <laughs> so the 60s and 70s were a pretty popular time for comic book characters on television with Batman and Robin. Uh, Wonder Woman, and The Incredible Hulk all starring in their own hit TV series. So it only seemed natural to add Spider-Man to that list. So created by the prolific television writer Alvin Boritz, The Amazing Spider-Man premiered in September of 1977. Uh, This is a live-action Spider-Man show, and unlike the Japanese version, this show adhered pretty closely to the comic books, mostly. Uh, Peter worked as a photojournalist. He wasn't a high school student. He was like 30 years old, but he was still a photographer, at least, you know. Uh, And then you had familiar characters like Aunt May and J. Jonah Jameson appearing in it. Uh, The actor who played Spider-Man or who played Peter Parker, I guess, was uh, Nicholas Hammond. He's best known as uh, Friedrich von Trapp in The Sound
1: of Music, uh, oddly know. enough, other than Spider-Man. That's his most well-known role. People um, think Spider-Man turned Off the Dark was like some unique concept, but people have been like really itching Spider-Man into musical theater musical, for as yeah. long as he's been around.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, technically, Hammond gets credit for playing the first live-action movie Spider-Man as well, because multiple feature-length episodes of The Amazing Spider-Man were packaged as films and released in international markets and in movie theaters from 1977 to 1981. So there's oh, an entire man. generation of people outside of the U.S. who grew up with Hammond playing Spider-Man on the big screen.
3: Oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's pretty neat. Uh, I think there's there's three or four of the movies. You can find the names of them on Wikipedia, I think. Uh, that TV show, it had pretty good ratings, uh, but its episodes were aired really erratically and infrequently on, on CBS. They kept changing the times or there'd be like months in between episodes. So uh, it was ultimately canceled after only 13 episodes. And while the show was well-liked by casual viewers, more hardcore fans of the Spider-Man character were critical of it because of its lack of any recognizable supervillains from the uh, Spider-Man comics. One of the people who was critical of it was Stanley himself. While the decision to pit Spider-Man against like petty crooks and small times arms dealers instead of, you know, the Green Goblin or Doc Ock, uh, that was likely due to budgetary constraints. But for the character's creator, uh, it was just too much of a departure. And he went on record several times over the years to express his disappointment with the direction that the show took. Although, oddly enough...
1: Uh, You even mentioned that interview before, like he didn't seem to have a problem with the Japanese show. Uh, (laughs) But I I was curious about that, actually. So I was like looking up stuff about Stan talking about both. I mean, the easy answer for it would be that the Japanese version was fun. He yeah, he, Mm. he basically for like Stan, he's not it's not like he's hung up on somebody dicking around with his creation so much as long as You keep like certain elements of it in there.
3: The spirit of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: there's the spirit. And so he straight up says that like the TV series for him, he said when he watched the Japanese version for him, it was immediately like a living comic book. It was Mm -hmm. fun. He knew he didn't understand exactly what was going on there, but he also was able to recognize the differences between American audiences versus Japanese audiences. But the spirit of the whole thing, like you said, Ty, was in the Japanese version. There was it was exciting It was cool to watch. It was just like the spectacle of the whole thing. And there was still Mm. like the characters mattered. He said that in the TV show, he thought it lacked exactly every single thing that made Spider-Man work. He said it didn't have humor, human interest, personality. It seemed like the American version they tried, they were afraid to be like all those other things. And Japanese, even though the story was completely different, he recognized that they still had the spirit of the whole thing.
2: Well, here, here's a quote. This might be uh, one of the interviews that you read, Gary, because uh, th- this kind of tracks with what you're saying. This is from a 2011 interview with the Television Academy Foundation. He said, with Spider-Man, I felt that the people who did the live action series left out the very elements that made the comic book popular. They left out the humor. They left out the human interest in playing up the personality and characteris- characterizations and personal problems. To me, it was
1: just a one-dimensional show. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's
2: kind of where he's coming
1: from yeah. And that's and it it, it was kind of you know, even though those characters and it, it works sometimes with uh like you could say the incredible Hulk works, right? Like it's it, it's yeah, kind sure. of a sad I mean, story, it's kind know? of a
2: sad inherently sad character anyway, though. And Spider-Man is not, you know, Spider-Man's right. fun. Spider-Man's so the funny can, you character. You can play
1: up the drama in the Hulk mm-hmm. and just have the Hulk come out every once in a while and do his thing, but the David Banner. Stuff is you still get to have the acting and stuff. But you can't. It's that that doesn't work the same way with Spider Man. No,
2: it doesn't work for yeah. every character. Now, Stan Lee might not have been a fan, but there was one uh, person who was a big fan of this this particular version of Spider Man, and it was uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Quentin Tarantino <laughs> grew up loving this show when he was a kid, and that actually ultimately led to Nicholas Hammond getting a small role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's the movie director, uh, the guy with the like bright silver hair with the big glasses. When yeah. uh, you, know, you know the when they're making the movie, the scene where uh, where Leonardo DiCaprio, like where they're making the movie at the beginning where he fucks up his line and gets mad at himself in his trailer. The director yeah. of that film is Nicholas Hammond, and Tarantino oh. cast him because he was a fan.
1: Props that's to Tarantino awesome. <laughs> that you just mentioned that scene. And I started laughing to myself about <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio in that trailer. So props to both scene. those guys. But yeah. No, no. And that's, and that's a good point too. One thing that Stanley did compliment the show on that he loved about the Japanese version and the American TV version. He said that nobody tried to skirt around with some of the, like the wall crawling. Like he yeah. he was fascinated by the wall crawling in both that they mm-hmm. actually didn't even try to animate or computer generate or, I mean, back then, you couldn't really do that same thing, but no. it was like... They
2: kind of did it the same way that Batman and Robin walked up walls on uh, on the Batman TV show. Yeah. yeah. You know, where, <laughs> where talked about everybody he loved the, stunt, the kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. 1980s, early 1980s. And Stan Lee begins reaching out to Hollywood to try to get someone to bring some of Marvel's most popular characters to the big screen. Now, it's hard to believe it's weird talking about this now uh, because it's really hard to believe in today's comic book saturated world. Uh, But at the time, he wasn't having a lot of luck. Nobody wanted to make comic book movies Uh, aside from Richard Donner's Superman in 1978 and its first sequel, uh, which is all that was out at the time. The the studios weren't really interested in going to the world of comic book superheroes to find their next film project. Mm. And because of this, a lot of the early attempts at Spider-Man movies were filled with false starts. First, there's that Steve Crantz attempt that I mentioned earlier, you know, the one with Elton John playing Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. Then for a while,
1: up, wait, that's the wrong one. No, that's Sorry. the big Jagger. We're closer, tighter, spider. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. That's good.
2: That's good. I think you can do Spider-Man Rock, like in the tune of Crocodile Rock. Oh yeah, I, that's I a cool work word. on that one. We'll release that on YouTube later. Yeah, we'll do a
1: whole album. It.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just elton john covers about spider-man yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man so uh anyway uh you, you've got the steve krantz version that was really the first time that someone tried to make a spider-man movie although that uh, did not get very far uh then for a while in the early 80s orion pictures owned the theatrical rights to spider-man and worked on a film adaptation with b-movie maestro roger corman but Orion still eventually fell apart reportedly because Lee and Corman could never see Ida dot, Eye to eye on a suitable budget. Um, I'm guessing Corman wanted a lower budget because it's Roger Corman and that's what he does. And Lee probably wanted a higher budget that could do the character more justice. Uh, you didn't know we were going to mention Roger Corman here, although he's got some comic book stuff in his past, you know, he's got that fantastic four <laughs>
3: movie. That fantastic four, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he
2: he'd get to make his comic book movie later on, probably for about the budget he was trying to do for
1: uh, for Spider Man. Those used uh, to be the holy grail. Do you remember that? I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just five finding uh, copies of a Fantastic now, I think Four. you can probably find it on YouTube it's probably something. on YouTube yeah or but, at least
2: the internet archive or something
1: yeah but that old Fantastic Four or the I, I remember watching back in the day the Captain America with the rubber ears mm-hmm. oh, that yeah. one. That one, I used to
2: rent that one that one yeah was I used to
1: rent fun. that one but
2: well then in 1985 one attempt at a Spider-Man movie actually gained some traction when Canon Films purchased the theatrical
1: rights to the character for $225,000 that Captain America, by the way, he got car sick. That's always my favorite memory of that is that he got cars because they didn't have cars in the 40s, you know, so he could. <laughs> so He, could, he wasn't <laughs> used to vehicles. Didn't he ride a motorcycle? <laughs> Did he drive a motorcycle? He rode a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, stupid. I don't remember what the reason was.
2: Now, uh, you probably didn't know that we were going to talk about Canon films and Roger Corman here. Uh, if we I feel like Canon films, you know, we, we joke about how much we bring up Roger Corman's name on this podcast. Uh, because he's there's every movie almost has some sort of connection. Uh is like two degrees away from Roger Corman. But Canon films, I feel like we mentioned just as much, if not more, honestly. Uh, but for those who might not be familiar with canon films, uh, first of all, head head back to our series on Toby Hooper. That's the long version of that story. I think we got pretty detailed into their history on that. But here's the Cliff's notes version. The kids still know what cl- Cliff's notes are, the kids still use Cliff's notes, or they're just asking chat GPT questions. Here's about. the
1: chat GPT <laughs> version. <of that. laughs> we should start something right now.
2: There's the chat GPT uh, version of this. So Canon was an independent studio known for pumping out low budget, but easily marketable movies, usually with the results that you would expect from such a formula. Uh, the Canon films that we're most familiar with, the, the version of the studio that we're most familiar with, was really born in 1979. The, the studio itself was founded many years earlier, back in the 60s, but when we think of canon films, the one we're thinking of is the one that was really reborn in 1979, when Israeli cousins Minahem Golan and Yoram Globus purchased the fledgling studio for $500,000. Uh, under their direction, uh, Canon would go on to release the likes of uh, the Death Wish movies, the Death Wish sequels, I should say. They didn't do the first one. They did the more more exploitative uh, sequels to Death Wish. They did Chuck Norris films like Missing in Action, Invasion USA, and the Delta Force uh, before a series of financial disappointments, including Superman 4, put them in dire financial straits. And one mm. of the projects that was canceled due to these financial troubles would actually end up being Spider-Man. So, Golan and Globus' initial pitch for a Spider-Man movie proves that they didn't know a whole lot about the material that they'd spent nearly a quarter of a million dollars to buy. They just knew that it was famous. Uh, The film was to be a creature feature, a horror movie, basically, written by Leslie Stevens and directed by none other than Toby Hooper.
1: Mm, I mean, I'm in. It'll be a joke, but I'm fucking, let's do it.
2: Hey, you know what? And this is during, you know, to take it back to that Toby Hooper series, this is around the time of... You know, when he was under contract with Canon. So we did a whole series, Toby Hooper the Canon
1: Years, about the three movies that he made for them. This could have been one of those movies. Wow. It's uh, weird to was... think about, but like, I mean, and going back to like missing an action evasion USA, the Death Wish sequels, especially three. Like, no, all those movies are fantastic. And literally yep. last week I just watched Cobra and uh oh God. Those movies are so good, and on one hand, you think this sounds like a stupid idea. But one thing they would probably get are the quips because all of these movies, the action stars like makes the one liners quips, (laughs) the (laughs) one one liners throughout (laughs) the whole thing. So I I could give them that, but they would have probably cast Sylvester Stallone, (laughs) yeah, or Chuck (laughs) Norris. Uh,
2: But because you know these guys, they'd grown up in Israel, um, and they hadn't really read any Spider-Man comics. Uh, so because of this, Golan and Globus naturally assumed that a Spider-Man was akin to, let's say, a Wolfman, where a man is transformed into a giant man-spider hybrid. Makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so in this version of the story, Peter Parker is bombarded with radiation by a mad scientist named Dr. Zork, which causes him to mutate into the aforementioned man-spider. Once this happens, Zork tries to get Peter to lead an army of creatures, his his other creations, these other, uh, I guess, human-animal hybrids that he'd created. Uh, He wants Peter to lead this army against humanity. Peter turns down the offer and instead spends the rest of the movie battling each of Zork's other monsters, which, to be fair, sounds awesome. I mean, I would watch the hell out of that movie, but it certainly does not sound like Spider-Man.
1: No. (laughs) It's it's weird to think about too that they're probably like having these discussions about like let's do Spider Man. They're like, well, we don't have much of a budget for this, and they're like, I wanted to turn him into a spider and have a shit ton of monsters in there that he fights. We'll make something work. Like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) if they get like
2: they get you know Tom Savini or somebody to do or Rob Bottin to do the effects of the the spider transformation.
1: It would have been, it could have been cool, but it wouldn't
2: have been a Spider-Man movie.
1: Right. (laughs) Well, it seems Uh, like that's, it's almost like, almost with every single one of these things so far, it's been like, why do you need Spider-Man?
2: Yeah, right. Just major old (laughs) shit.
1: Exactly. Uh, So, I mean, it
2: honestly kind of sounds like a a take on the fly.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was like, oh man, I wonder if David Cronenberg could have cranked out. A brief shout out. I think part of
1: the reason is Uh, Just answering my own question right now, just thinking about it, is that Steve Ditko deserves a lot of fucking love for that costume design, right? Yeah, that's
3: true. It's Mm -hmm. iconic.
1: People want that fucking costume. Mm -hmm. That's what they want.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, so if Stan Lee hated the TV show version, the American TV show version of Spider-Man, which at least somewhat resembled his creation, uh, what do you think he thought of this version, the Toby Hooper (laughs) canon films version of it?
0: Well, uh, yeah. he hated it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He hated it. And thankfully he was able to step in and keep it from getting made. Uh, and then Lee was able to convince Canon to work on a script with a couple of writers that he'd come to know named Ted Newsom and John Brancato. I feel
1: sorry for Stan Lee because all this time, like he's been working so hard and he's like, guys, I'm not beholden to any storyline. I let the Japanese do whatever, but this makes me cry. and want to throw up. <laughs>
2: it sounds terrible Lee took a liking to these two writers uh, not long after meeting them he just kind of clicked with them and in sort of a trial run he gave them an assignment to write a script for Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos Uh, Lee Mm -hmm. loved that script and that kind of let Lee know that these two like these were the guys who should work on a Spider-Man script he's like these guys get it you know Uh, he figured that these were the guys who could do it and do it right So he lets this writing team take a crack at Spider-Man. And once again, when they come back with the script, he loves it. It was everything Lee wanted from a Spider-Man movie. It was a clear adaptation of the comics with Peter's uh, origin story intact. It had recognizable villains, including Dr. Otto Octavius as the film's main bad guy. And, you know, reading a little bit about the script... It also seems that it was very much a product of its time. I mean, yeah, it was a Spider-Man movie, but it was also very clearly a 1980s Spider-Man movie. Uh, uh, for starters, the actor who the writer, you know when they're writing it, they're picturing an actor as Spider-Man. Uh, they pictured John Cusack in the Peter Parker role. Uh, John Cusack <laughs> at the time, he was hot off of roles uh, in films like 16 Candles, Better Off Dead, Stand By Me. Kind of makes sense, you know? Uh, I then, can picture uh, him. Yeah, I, I can picture him, especially like an 80s version, like Say Anything era- John Cusack, I could see him as Spider-Man. And then they also, they uh, in another very 80s scene, they wrote in a segment where Spider-Man guest stars on Letterman to do some stupid human tricks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in the classic comic book sequence where Peter uses his powers in a wrestling match, Brancato and Newsom included in the script a gentleman by the name of Hulk Hogan. Uh, not a Hulk Hogan type character or a character loosely based on Hulk Hogan. They literally wrote the Hulkster into the script. Uh, (laughs) And Hogan was apparently friends with Stan Lee. So they were pretty sure they could get him into the movie. So they'd like, they were confident that they could actually get Hulk Hogan. So they literally wrote him in there.
1: Well, let me tell you something, (laughs) Webhead. You've been, you've been swinging around New York, dude. But Hulkamania is about to run wild on you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been in the movie. That scene would have been in the movie, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, no, he. Well, the Hulk it Marvel relationship goes back for forever, I guess. He, yeah. because even, uh, uh, you know, the Hulk Hulk Hogan, you know, he, Hulk comes from the Incredible, Incredible Hulk, yeah. and uh, so. But it is actually funny. I was looking at into this, just trying to see like the actual connection here, and didn't necessarily find anything except that it's funny that. Stan Lee and uh uh Jack Kirby, those guys were like just really fond of the name Hulk. Like they had uh-huh. used it multiple, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And uh there was a two gun kid story in the nineteen sixties, gunsmoke western number sixty-three. Uh but uh the two gun kin- kid uh the big bad that he has to go up against in that issue is Hulk Hogan. Oh, that's the that's the character's name. <laughs> yeah, wow. it's the character's name. He's just a big badass cowboy. Huh. And, uh... Well, I mean,
2: Stan Lee was kind of friends with a lot of these bodybuilder types because he had become friends with Lou Ferrigno through the Incredible Hulk TV series. Course, so all yes. of these like big okay. muscular guys, uh, they all loved Stan Lee. Like they looked up to him, even though he was like this nerdy kid from New York and you know this little <laughs> skinny guy. But all these like big macho bodybuilder types all like loved Stan Lee.
1: Let me tell you something from hanging out with wrestlers is they're all nerds. Every single <laughs> one of them is most most of them are still nerds. They, they love grew comic up,
2: books. They, they grew, they grew up, up as wrestling fans.
1: Yeah, and they grew up yeah. as wrestling fans exactly. <laughs> they just decided to get built and do something right. about it. And so <laughs> uh I actually in looking at the the stuff from the script on this one, I actually even understood the Letterman bit. Like I thought it, it made a lot of sense. It was actually yeah. kind of cool to me yeah. because it he he does the wrestling thing And then he gets picked up by an agent who, like, promises him a bunch of money. Like, I can Mm -hmm. get you gigs and stuff like that. And so, like, Spidey's, like, a regular issue for him in the comics is not having enough money. He's always Mm -hmm. broke and, like, figuring out how he's going to pay rent. So he takes on the agent and gets booked on Letterman. And uh, so it all kind of makes sense. And then it's, like, I think it's after that and in that script where it's kind of the same deal. He's, He's, like, on a pay phone, lets a crook slide past him. And then later on, Uncle Ben gets carjacked and it's uh, by the same criminal that he let through and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, so did you it, read the script? No, I didn't read the whole script. I read, read like a summary you sent me, I think.
2: Oh, yeah, the, that summary on Reddit that, that yeah. I found. Yep. So there's yeah, like stuff I'll... like
1: Liz Allen's apparently the love interest mm-hmm. uh, Aunt May and Ben are younger, which is something we kind of see the movies going towards. Uh,
2: I don't know. Marissa Tomei is still the right age for uh, Aunt May. She's just She's just aged very well. I was about to say, like, either (laughs) May's been aged down
1: more or Uh, we've uh, finally met enough that, like, May is now my love interest. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So So, while this script sounds like it would have made a pretty great big
2: screen uh, introduction for Spider-Man, it just wasn't meant to be, especially at canon. Because remember, it's the mid-1980s. Uh, a lot of stuff in the script featured sequences that simply would not have been possible to pull off in a pre-CGI world. It just wasn't physically possible. But even if it were possible to, like, pull this off somehow using practical effects, Hannon wasn't exactly known for investing tons of money into their movies. And so with that in mind, Golan and Globus hired a director who had help some profitable, uh, if not critically praised films for the studio, Invasion USA director Joseph Zito. Now, I'm not talking shit about Joe Zito when I say that oh they just hired this this guy. Uh, I love Joe Zito. I, I, I love Joe Zito's movies. Uh, this is the guy who gave us Friday the 13th, the final chapter, uh, which is a great one. It's especially if you like gore. That's one of the gorier ones that led to Cannon hiring him to direct Missing in Action and Invasion USA. And those movies made a lot of money, which, of course, endeared Zito to Golan and Globus because you know they liked money. Uh, so after reading in the trades that Cannon had acquired the rights to Spider-Man, Zito actually approached Golan in an elevator at Cannon's offices one day, and he told him... Him. He said, I want Spider-Man. And Golan agreed to do that. He gave Spider-Man to Zito with a $20 million budget, which for Canon was a lot of money. Uh, for comparison, uh, Invasion USA had a budget of about $12 million, uh, which at the time was actually pretty high for Canon, but missing in action only cost about $2.5 million. Uh, wow. And they had both been big hits. So you could see why they thought that this guy could do a lot if they were if he was given a real budget. And to his credit, Zito had no intention of this being some cheapo cash grab. Uh, he was a Spider-Man fan, and he intended to do the character justice. He was really taking this seriously. Uh, so pre-production began, and Zito traveled to Canon Studio in London, and he started assembling his crew, who spent weeks testing ways to showcase Spidey's comic book powers on screen. He also had some pretty fun ideas for who he wanted to cast in the film. Uh, he had, like, his dream cast set, you know, for Doc Ock. Uh, he wanted Bob Hoskins nice. for for Aunt May. He envisioned Katherine Hepburn or uh, or Lauren Bacall.
3: There's your star power right there. Right,
2: that's what great casting. I mean, if you can get yeah, on, that is those If are you can awesome. cast Catherine Hepburn or Lauren Bacall in any role in the movie, yeah, let's go for it. You know, that's yeah. why he needs the twenty million dollar budget. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And for Peter Parker, well, for Peter Parker, he wanted Tom Cruise. Don't we know? Um,
0: Okay.
3: <laughs> this
2: is 80s Tom Cruise. This is 80s Tom Cruise. And I think, I mean, that's
0: actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually yeah. Pretty great casting.
2: Right. I mean, this is Tom Cruise. This is before, you know, he wasn't the megastar that he is today, but he was well on his way. I mean, he had already mm-hmm. appeared in Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders. He'd already been in All the, right Mo- All the Right Moves. And he had just scored a massive hit with Risky Business. That was his biggest film to date. Uh, But what Zito didn't know when he was dreaming about casting Cruise was that Tom Cruise was about to become one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Because in May of 1986, this is like while they're planning all of this, Mm. Top Gun gets released, uh, Uh, propelling Cruise to superstardom and probably killing any chance that Zito might have had in getting him cast as Peter Parker. Uh, But if think of that had happened, like Tom Cruise as Spider-Man in a 1986 movie, it could have been good because him at that time and he's, yeah. he's 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 tom cruise is a little guy he's like five foot six or something uh so he had he actually has the physicality to be a spider-man
1: yeah i was say that's the thing with him is like i don't doubt cruise for much anymore like he just no. throws himself into anything he does he sure does so yeah <laughs> uh, it's uh He's one of those guys like it's, it's it's just like a Leo or a Brad Pitt or mm-hmm. some of those guys who like you, you, you kind of want to write them off sometimes as being pretty boys or something like that. But they make there.
2: good decisions and they are all in on it,
1: you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever they pick, they are all about making it exactly right.
2: Mm-hmm. So luckily, Zito had a backup plan, one that was much more suited to Canon's way of doing things, meaning it was a cheaper option. Uh, the backup plan was a guy named Scott Leva. Leva was known as a stuntman, not an actor. That's why you probably haven't heard of his name. Uh, And Zito actually saw that as a plus because as a former gymnast, Leva had the right physicality for the role. And in fact, he had cosplayed as Spider-Man in between movie gigs, even getting hired to officially appear as the character at events and at parades. And to top it all off, he had already had a bit of comic book movie experience. He had been a stuntman and a stunt coordinator on Richard Donner's Superman in 1978.
3: Nice. Nice. Yeah. And uh, one step further, if you're wondering who we're trekking with, it's Scott Leva. He actually (laughs) did uh, three episodes of Deep Space Nine and one episode of Voyager. All a stunt. yeah uh no he actually it was more background background okay. type roles but uh but that's every spider-man in star trek
2: squeeze
1: the trekking into this episode todd
2: yeah
3: <laughs> interesting
1: side note the one thing this made me think about is uh my first movie fun fact i ever had was from the superman movie and it was me asking my dad uh how they made superman fly and he told me they hang him from a crane and swing him around. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and I believe that for forever. And, uh, and it, so that would have been Scott Leva, I guess. Yeah, he's <laughs> getting it was swung around. Swung around, around <laughs> I always thought that they just put him on a like a glass table, and you just couldn't see the table. Oh yeah, that makes sense That too. that was
2: what I thought they did. when That's I was actually a kid.
1: more believable than they just like,
2: <laughs> just like swung <laughs>
3: him freely. I
2: genuinely around. don't know how they did it. I've never looked it up, so that could be how they did it. For all I know, <laughs> right?
3: I I want I want us to produce a movie that involves a lot of special effects, but we're not allowed to look into how to actually do them. We just have to do the special effects the way we Think they're supposed to be
0: done. This
2: is going to be like Be Kind Rewind. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> like a superhero version of Be Kind Rewind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so while pre production on Zito's Spider Man movie sped along, things began to fall apart at Canon Films. The studio had been managing their money poorly. And when they began planning two of their biggest films to date, which were Superman 4 and Masters of the Universe, the one with Dolph Lundgren. They decided to slash Zito's Spider-Man budget in half and divert the money into those other films. So heartbroken and frustrated. And knowing that there was no way he could make a decent version of Spider-Man for only $10 million, Zito left the project.
1: Uh, worth mentioning here is uh actually they they did make a trailer. You can find it on YouTube. I did watch that. And oh yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a trailer for I mean, it's not it's not anything special, it's like mostly like cityscape and Mm -hmm. that it's just like uh like a sales trailer kind of thing yeah yeah basically and so you see this uh i really got to get our youtube channel straight because i'll just put it on there but the uh there's a spider-man in it like i mean it's the cityscape and it says like coming soon from canon entertainment or whatever and blah blah blah. that's you know just like the amazing spider-man and has the logo and he'd like kind of just Flips into frame or something, you know, and it's the costume, it's the regular costume. And That's everything. cool. I wonder
2: it if Aliva in the costume in that.
1: Yeah, I assume it is, but yeah, I don't know for sure. But yeah, they made like a little teaser thing for it. So Zito leaving the project did not kill it
2: completely, at least not right away. Canon would make several other attempts to get a Spider-Man movie made, uh, and they actually they ended up having the script rewritten to accommodate a lower budget. Uh, b- you know, because again, this is Canon Films, and also because it's Canon Films, they replaced uh, Zito with Albert Pien. But development on the film eventually stopped as Canon continued to bleed money, heading towards bankruptcy. And then in 1988, as part of a $200 million deal, Canon was taken over by Pathé Communications, which was a holding company controlled by an Italian financer named Giancarlo Peretti. Then in 1989, Peretti bought 21st Century Distribution Company and made Minahem Golan the studio's CEO. As part of his severance package from Canon, Golan took the rights to Captain America and Spider-Man pretty good severance package right and he would eventually put Captain America into production with Albert Pyun at the helm and released it straight to video in
3: 1990. Yeah I, I Gary I think you mentioned it earlier i I still really like that 1990 Captain America it's a, it's a lot of fun it's not you know the big the big blockbuster version that we got with uh, Chris Evans or anything but it is a really fun movie I, I enjoy it. There's cool stuff in it. I mean, and it's like
1: starring uh, Matt Salinger, JD Salinger's son. Yeah. And, uh, it's, uh it's it's he's got rubber ears. There's I just don't know why they <laughs> did that. That's, that's it it thing. seems
2: it seems odd. Uh here's another little fun bit of trivia though is that uh another movie that Albert Pyun directed is called Cyborg. It was uh starred John claude Van Damme. I'm sure you've seen at least seen the video if you haven't seen the movie. It was actually one of the last films that can and produced uh under canon films at the time uh, under that version of canon films at the time and cyborg actually reused like sets and props that were being created for spider-man and also some stuff that were that was being uh that had been made for a planned masters of the universe sequel so they kind of reuse all this stuff for for cyborg starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and that movie's fun
1: by the way, yeah, if Pion's... I remember right, when we did when they did the movie, it was like it was supposed to be the sequel to Masters of the Universe or something, yeah. wasn't it? Like that was I the think original so. intention. So, yeah, and then they they
2: uh, had to re rework it. But Albert Pion's filmography is fun. He he passed away just a few months ago, but I I would definitely if you want to watch some fun Albert Pion movies other than Captain America, watch Cyborg and watch uh, Nemesis. Those are both the two that I would recommend. Nice. While he still held the rights to Spider Man. What Golan did not know was that there was another director who wanted to take a swing at the character, a guy who had already had a couple of big hits on his hands, a guy named James Cameron, a.k.a. Jimmy Cameroon. We're back. Jimmy Cameroon.
0: <laughs> We're back. Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a.k.a. J <J-Cams. laughs> Uh So if you've listened to our James Cameron series, well, first of all, if you haven't listened to our James Cameron series, what are you waiting for? We put a lot of work into it, and it's really good, <laughs> I think, if I do say so myself. I'm uh, <laughs> proud of that series. I think we did great. But if you have listened to it, then some of what I'm going to go over here is going to sound a little familiar because we did discuss this briefly during that series. But uh, for those who might not have listened or might need a refresher, we're going to go over some of the details of Cameron's own adventures with Spider-Man. Because honestly, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man would not have looked the same if it had not been for Cameron's involvement in the project. Mm-hmm. And in an alternate history where Cameron's version of the character got off the ground, the last quarter century in Hollywood probably look very, very different.
1: Oh, yeah. Not <laughs> high or drunk or anything right now. I just want you to know just some of the things that you say sometimes that trigger things in my brain uh just now when you (laughs) said his adventures with uh spider-man i was like just pictured the spider-man 2 cover i think it is where like spider-man swinging and mary jane's like in his arms and I, i just pictured james cameron there instead I just pictured the <laughs> I pictured the scene from the first Spider-Man where Spider-Man's hanging upside down kissing Mary Jane in the rain. <laughs> right, right. But
2: it's James Cameron. Uh, either instead way. Of, instead of Kirsten Dunst. Brilliant. That's oh. a movie
1: we didn't get that we should have. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, growing up, James Cameron was a huge Spider-Man fan. He loved the comic books. Uh, He was an avid comic book reader, and even more so, uh, he was an avid artist. We talked about that a lot during that series, but he would often sketch his own comic book style doodles, and he modeled his drawing style after Steve Ditko's. And then even as an eighth grader, he was so obsessed with Spider-Man that he adopted a rigorous exercise routine in the hopes that he would be able to recreate a physique like Spider-Man's. He he even says it. He says we didn't call it parkour at the time, but basically what I was doing was parkour, like where he was jumping around off of off of things on the schoolyard and stuff nice Yeah, to be honest
3: he does kind of have that physique
2: yeah except except he's like six foot five or something
3: oh well yeah
1: (laughs) you could totally picture that jim cameron also probably hoped that one day he would invent like web shooters and other shit that he would just become (laughs) spider-man yeah yeah uh so it was in the late 80s after he had directed aliens
2: and the abyss that cameron started circling the character but of course uh canon they still had the rights or at least um Golan, i guess still had the rights to the character at this point
1: to be fair by the way i wasn't dissing james cameron for that i've often wished i could have become spider-man i wanted my mom to make me the costume when i was a kid like i had never seen myself naked in the mirror before it would be a terrible <laughs> idea but <laughs> anyway just throwing that
2: out there <laughs> now, Spider Man was actually not the first Marvel comic character that Cameron attempted to bring to the big screen. Before he was able to get his hands on Spider Man, Cameron toyed with the idea of producing an adaptation of the X Men, which Catherine
1: Bigelow, who was his wife at the time, would have directed. That
3: would have been fucking awesome. This was like, <laughs> this was the most
1: frustrating part about these notes of yours. Yes. Yeah. As like, I saw this and could I never even, I don't remember us talking about that before. And I was like, I, James Cameron's X-Men actually makes all the sense. And Catherine Bigelow directing it right on the heels of Point Break. Right. Yes. So you've got Keanu Keanu
2: Reeves could have played Wolverine. Uh, Oh, my God. (laughs) Who could Patrick? Patrick Swayze could have been Cyclops. Or.
3: Oh, my God. Totally.
2: Yeah. With the hair. Come on. With that 80s 80s hair. Like, keep the long hair. Have like a very 80s long hair. uh,
1: Cyclops. (laughs) That would have been great. I'd have been down for that. Man, he just he just and he's so good with like ensemble casts. Mm-hmm. It feels like and like it just feels like the science of the whole thing. Or yeah, he would have turned the jeans out. and the, that would have been all Jim Cameron.
2: Yeah, so Cameron, uh, you know, I mean, he's serious about that, this, and he invited Stan Lee and Chris, Chris Claremont, who was writing the X Men comic books at the time. Uh, he invited them to his offices at Lightstorm Entertainment. This is in 1990, and he makes a pitch to them. Now, oddly enough, uh, this is just a fun little tidbit I had to throw in here because I found it really strange that Claremont, when he talks about this in interviews, uh, because I can't believe we're mentioning this guy twice during a a, a Spider-Man episode, but the guy that Claremont pictured as Wolverine was Bob Hoskins. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's strictly the
1: short thing. It's just going to be yeah, short. Yeah, yeah. That's all it is.
2: Uh he also pictured Angela Bassett as Storm, which honestly is a pretty great idea. That's that, not yeah, that's yeah pretty there's awesome. nothing wrong with that one. But I can see him as Doc Ock but not necessarily Wolverine. I just don't yeah. see that ferocity although i don't know in hook he's got that uh, <laughs> uh, he who knows who knows what could have happened anyway
1: no this is not the wolverine <laughs> podcast i'm still holding up for tom hardy or somebody one day like I, feel yeah like, oh, uh, he's, he's short already in like real built and yeah everyone has. wants daniel radcliffe because he's short but i keep seeing that but i just don't i just don't picture him doing the angry face so yeah well. i don't know
2: no. but anyway at one point during this meeting stanley turns to james cameron and says Hey, I hear you like Spider Man, and then Cameron's eyes just lit up, and he so, and Lee just so start,
0: Jimmy Jimmy Cameroon. I hear you like <laughs> Spider Man,
2: so uh, they start chatting away about Spider Man, and then it, so in this meeting, all these X Men guys like Chris Claremont, who are like watching this, they just they're just seeing. Their dreams of a James Cameron produced X-Men movie just evaporate before their eyes <laughs> as, as Jim Cameron and and Stanley are just like geeking out over, over Spider-Man. Oh. Uh, but it was never going to be easy for James Cameron to make his own Spider-Man movie. The rights to the character were at this point pretty complicated with a lot of different parties claiming the rights to the character. And then Cameron managed to get another studio involved, and that was Carolco Pictures. Carol Coe, we talked about them a lot during that James Cameron series, but they had made their name and reputation on the Rambo films. And as uh, listeners might remember, James Cameron had written the the script for Rambo 2, First Blood 2. Cameron had a pretty good relationship with the studio, and Carol Coe would eventually, they'd end up getting the rights to The Terminator. Uh, That was very complicated, too. And that would ultimately lead to Cameron's own Terminator 2, which became, you know, like the highest grossing movie of all time. Mm. So they wanted a good relationship with James Cameron obviously and they did uh they basically bought the rights to Spider-Man because they wanted to make James Cameron happy and they purchased the rights to Spider-Man for 5 million dollars. Now you might be asking yourself at this point what about the Canon guys or what about Golan and Globus I, you know, I thought that they owned the rights to it well This may come as a surprise, but Minahem Golan was not managing 21st century distribution very well, and the Mm. studio needed some money. So as a way to get some fast cash, Golan split the rights to Spider-Man between three different companies. Television rights to the character went to Viacom. Home video rights went to Columbia Pictures. And then finally, theatrical rights went to Carolco. So different people own different versions of this character depending on where it's being released wow but once this happened cameron immediately jumped into the project head first uh when he wrote his own treatment for the film he mostly stayed true to the comics using the general blueprint from that that uh, ted Newsom and john brancato script from a few years earlier the one with david letterman's stupid human tricks in it yeah (laughs) Uh, it had this script that or this treatment that james cameron wrote had all of the familiar trademarks of the character the radioactive spider bite. Mary Jane Watson was there, Aunt May and Uncle Ben, you know, but Cameron also wanted to go around the store in reality. So kind of taking a cue from the comics, you know, he wanted his Spider-Man to feel like he was in the real world, not in some heightened comic book universe. Mm. Cameron's biggest departure from the source material was in the way that Peter creates his webbing. In the comics, Peter Parker, who is, you know, a nerd, he's a science whiz. He creates these mechanical web shooters that are worn on his wrists. but in Cameron's script, he describes uh this is a, a quote from his treatment, a dark shape, the size and color of a rose thorn that emerges from Peter's skin. And that's where these organic webs come from. Now, does that sound familiar to uh yeah. to, to you guys?
3: Yeah, it sounds uh yeah, vaguely familiar for
1: sure. <laughs> it does sound familiar, and uh, so I guess we'll get to reuse that. But I would say too, he he wrote a scriptment uh at the time. And so I, I saw like a little bit of that. And one of the other bigger things that James Cameron changed to me was that he wanted to make it like, have you guys seen Riverdale? That's yeah, what I'm I thought. Familiar of. with it, yeah. I felt like Riverdale, like, like he like super he wanted to make it like weird. Yeah, dark and weird. Like it, it felt like because like when he first gets this power, he kind of spies on Mary Jane like creepily and uh, like watching her through her window and like, uh, um. He he has like nocturnal emissions of webbing, like so like they're the organic webs. But one day, like wakes up and they're all under his sheets and stuff. And like, yeah, well he did he does
2: talk about wanting it. He he wanted it to be kind of a metaphor for like puberty and things like which
1: Spider Man kind of is. I think they have sex on the Brooklyn Bridge at the end. Wow, Uh, there's uh, (laughs) a the villains like he doesn't keep any known villains. I mean he keeps some premises. So like uh the the big bad in the movie is this guy named uh I don't know it's like Spencer I forget the last name doesn't matter anyway it's like a combination of kingpin and electro like it's this okay major bad guy that buys a lot of things and buying up property and stuff but he ends up getting like electrical powers or something like that. But then he has a heavy who is uh this dude uh, who basically is the Sandman. He has no backstory. He could just control sand or something. And so like, okay. it's, it's just kind of weird. Like he doesn't, I don't know, it, it just, and he cusses a lot. Like there's a lot <laughs> of cursing. It's like well, a Kevin Smith script. I have to imagine cursing. that
2: would have... <laughs> <laughs> Probably changed if, if the movie had ever been. Made. Yeah, there were theories do that, like you know an a R-rated. lot of that stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot of that stuff usually changes by the time you get to the finished product. But there mm-hmm. was just like a, it felt like it felt like a weird, angsty team thing. It yeah. was it was kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Strange. Well, uh, we do know
2: that Stanley doesn't like a lot of changes made to his characters, especially this character, but Cameron says that he he got Lee's approval for any changes from the source material that he made in his script. He got Lee to sign off on all of them. So Cameron worked on the script for a little while. Uh, That initial meeting with Stan Lee was in 1990. Terminator 2 was released. And then he followed that up with True Lies, as we know. And then once that shoot was done, it was reported in Variety that he had finally completed his script and turned it into Carol Co. So immediately, of course, casting rumors start swirling. Cameron's uh, regular collaborator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was attached to the role of Doc Ock, while Leonardo DiCaprio was in the running to play Peter Parker. Nice. But I despite would, I think
3: that would have worked. Yeah, I can see
2: that. I mean, he was around the right time uh, right age. He would have been a little bit older, but I mean, he probably wasn't any older than what Toby Maguire was when he played, you know, high school age. Uh, right. Peter Parker later on. Yeah. So like in his early 20s or so. But despite a solid script, an A-list director, and support from the guy who created the character, this version of Spider-Man never got off the ground either, thanks to the same kind of legal and financial woes that had plagued the character for the past decade. Minahem Golan filed a lawsuit against Carol Co. in 1993 over his producing credits on the film, mainly because he thought the execs were trying to squeeze him out, and then... Elsewhere, Carol Co. was suing Viacom and Columbia in an attempt to get the rights to the home video and television rights to the character, which prompted countersuits from Viacom and Columbia.
1: Yeah, there was supposedly like a phone call from Carol Co., like legit, where they called me to him, Golan, and asked them to just not put their names on the thing. Like no, they thought really. it would impact something like I, I read some article that was talking about that, that they like literally just asked them, like, hey, we don't want to use your names on this. Can we just not use your names?
2: <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't want the stigma that was, you know, because mm-hmm. he, he produced all these little low budget B movies and they were trying to make a like a big budget Hollywood movie. So yeah. I kind of get that, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but then came the final blow. Uh, Golan's 21st Century, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. <laughs> we t- there's so much bankruptcy talk during this episode, <laughs> and <laughs> which is 19- kind
3: of appropriate for Peter Parker, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's and he's worried about be money, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but Our,
3: uh, imitating life
2: <laughs> in 1995. Uh, 21st Century sold its film library to MGM Studios, which included all current drafts and completed versions of Spider Man screenplays, so anything that had been done. Uh, now belonged to MGM, at least temporarily. for So for a little while, MGM owned the rights to the character. And then at the same time, Carol Cove filed for bankruptcy thanks to the failure of Rennie Harlan's Cutthroat Island, which lost the studio about $147 million. Good God. God. Yeah. That's a so, story
1: for one day. It sure is, Yeah.
2: <laughs> So in Step's 20th Century Fox, who, uh, you know, they had distributed Aliens, The Abyss, and True Lies for James Cameron, and the studio claimed that Cameron was still under contract with them and that they wanted to be part of whatever his next project might be. They wanted to be in the James Cameron business, and and they were saying, hey, you're legally under contract to work with us. So naturally... Cameron tried to persuade Fox to bid on Spider-Man so that he could complete a script and, and make that movie. But Fox's CEO, Peter Shernan he wouldn't go for it. He didn't want to get entangled in the legal web surrounding the character. I see uh, what you did.
3: I see. I see. <laughs>
2: uh, of course, as we know, Cameron's relationship with Fox did continue. Uh, and when Spider-Man didn't work out, Cameron moved on to another little project that he had his eyes on called Titanic.
3: Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Which went nowhere.
2: now okay in true marvel fashion i'm gonna play a little game of what if so what if fox had said no and had signed on to make cameron spider-man if that happens then the entire course of hollywood history from that point on looks different right maybe titanic never happens or at the very least it happens later at which point leonardo dicaprio and kate winslet have probably aged out of the roles and never starred in the film If that had never happened, then what do Leo and Kate's careers look like? You know, does Leo still become as big of a star without Titanic? Uh, Does Kate Winslet continue to just do these like little period dramas that she had been doing before that movie? Maybe that Um, was Mary
1: Jane and Leo was Peter.
2: It could have been. But, you know, and you could argue that Leo, if he had been cast as Peter Parker, he could have still been a big star. But who's to say that he would have landed or even wanted that role? He didn't really even want the role in Titanic. So, i it would be hard to see him wanting a wow. role in a big superhero comic book movie. It's because if you've listened to our Titanic series, you know that Leo at the time was a little shit. yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> so then, if he hadn't made Titanic, what does James Cameron's career look like? Does he ever mm. become the underwater explorer that he would become as a result of the deep sea dives that he took on that film? And would the technology that was created for those dives have ever existed? Would the 3D cameras that he helped to create for his Deep Sea Challenge documentary have ever been made? And would the motion capture technology that he utilized on Titanic have ever been perfected? And if either one of those things happens, then does Avatar never exist? And if Avatar never exists, then I never get to eat cheeseburger pods at Satouli Cantina Animal Kingdom. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I think the bigger that's, question, that's, like that's with a most. good
3: facting there, Justin. Nice, i think the nice biggest thing we
1: should always keep in mind for what if is the most important question of all how does this affect vin diesel <laughs> 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 that's uh, that's true hollywood history that's what yeah. you need to know <laughs> i'm more hung up on the fact that if we made a good enough living off of this i could have the time to actually do a segment each week on how does this affect vin diesel <laughs>
2: Oh man, who would you cast Vin Diesel as in a Spider-Man movie, Gary? In a Spider-Man
1: movie? Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, the easy answer is if you were there is a Marvel character called Tombstone. I ran into him in the video game. But uh, he would be perfect. Like kind of a buff, like his skin's indestructible kind of thing, and Mm -hmm. he uh, just a it's a gruff villain guy, just a heavy kind of dude but i don't know vin diesel would probably be pretty good at that but king ben. see i thought i he thought could Venom.
3: Be king ben. he I could thought he'd be i thought i thought he'd be a good eddie brock okay he could,
1: maybe like yeah. he could he could do it he could do anything i mean he yeah i was <laughs> yeah. gonna say I mean, he could do anything so vin right. diesel yeah. for
3: aunt may i mean
1: look at look at riddick and those glasses he could be doc ock that's true <laughs> so, Ooh, Nice. You know, you know just depending Oh, what you want to do so
3: as long as it's all about family of course it it is is. um
1: (laughs) i will say like when you go and look at interviews with these guys uh the cameron like when you talk there's interviews with leo where he gets asked about the spider-man thing and he says like yeah it wasn't really a thing like he, he he plays it off he says like there was he's like i saw like a script but he's like i was never very close to it and then like uh Cameron, though, will say, like, it was closer than you realize it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, they probably (laughs) never got so far along to where they were in active talks with Leo because they never got that far along in the process. Right. But, all right, so if you're following the timeline that you know that we're getting pretty close to around the time when Sam Raimi joins the story, Uh, but there is one more very important character in the story that we have to talk about, and that's Avi because Arad is ultimately the guy who gets Spider-Man in front of moviegoers. So Avi Arad, uh, I'm sure if you've seen the Spider-Man movies, you've seen his name all over them. Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere. Uh, but he was in an, or he is an Israeli businessman who moved to the U.S. in 1970 to pursue an education. And while his story is fascinating, everything from you know the beginning, he was in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. Like he, His, his story is wild. Jeez. Uh, yeah, but uh, we don't have time to get into all that. Because, uh, so for the sake of our narrative here, we're going to skip forward to a few years to 1993, because that's when his fateful partnership with another Israeli businessman, uh, a business tycoon named Ike Perlmutter, or Perl- Perlmutter, I think it's Perlmutter, uh, when that relationship began. So Perlmuter was a shrewd and successful businessman who had made his fortune in corporate closeouts, uh, basically meaning buying up failing companies and then liquidating their assets. So in 1990, he purchased a fledgling toy manufacturer called Toy Biz after the company had filed for bankruptcy. I remember. Make a shot every time way. we say bankruptcy during this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his plan for Toy Biz was the same as for many of the other dying companies that he had purchased. He had just planned on liquidating them. So at the urging of some of his associates, Arad took a meeting with Perlmuter and, uh, Basically, to forge a business relationship, business partnership. And during this meeting, they're in in his office, and Arad sees a toy biz catalog kind of sitting on Perlmuter's desk. Starts flipping through it, and while flipping through it, he finds some inspiration. You see, Arad had grown up loving comic books, particularly Marvel comic books. And he had actually spent some time early on in his career designing action figures for Hasbro, Mattel, and Tyco. Nice. So, it, as it turned out, these two passions collided with Toy Biz because Toy Biz was the company who produced action figures based on Marvel's stable of characters. They were the ones making all the stuff you saw on the shelves in the 80s and early 90s. Nice. So, Rod saw potential in Toy Biz. And in their connection to Marvel, of course. And it took a bit of convincing because Perlmuter reportedly didn't have a clue what Marvel was. He's like, What is Marvel? I don't, I don't know what this is. Uh, but Arad managed to talk him out of liquidating the company. So Perlmuter, being the shrewd businessman that he is, he recognized a big problem in the area of toy toy manufacturing, making toys. Uh this is probably honestly one of the problems that led to toy business going into bankruptcy to begin with. And that's that said, a lot of smaller toy companies lost a considerable chunk of their profits because they had to pay licensing and royalty fees to bigger companies like Marvel or Disney. So in 1993, Toy Biz approached Marvel with a new deal. They said they were going to hand over 46% of the toy company to Marvel, which gave the perpetually cash-strapped company a much needed influx of funds. In exchange, Marvel gave Toy Biz an exclusive no-fee license to make as many toys, action figures, and merchandise as they wanted, which, of course, meant more money for Perlmuter. And for Arad, it meant more opportunities to play in that Marvel sandbox.
0: Nice. And
2: Arad knew that the best thing for Marvel's characters would be to get them in front of more audiences, not just your comic book geeks, but your everyday regular Joe who might not be heading to the comic book store every Wednesday, right? Mm. And he knew that the best way to do that was with movies. A successful movie would be beneficial to Marvel because they would sell more comics and their characters would have a higher profile. And the movies would also essentially serve as big budget commercials for Marvel merchandise, which Toy Biz owned the rights to without having to pay any royalty. So they just pocketed all of the profits. Nice. So Rod spearheaded the campaign to get more Marvel characters into their own movies. And with that, Marvel Films... Was born. It's called Marvel Studios now, but at the time, the division was called Marvel Films. So, Rod's vision would be to see Marvel have its own independent film company, where it could maintain full creative control of all of its properties while reaping most of the profits. But the the company, you know, they they were still kind of broke. Marvel was, so they couldn't really afford to finance the movies on their own. They would need to partner with Hollywood studios for financing in order to kind of get their foot in the door in Hollywood. So Rod starts shopping around, trying to sell the idea of big budget superhero movies to a Hollywood who had very little interest in movies based on comic books. Because this is the '90s. Uh, aside from you know Batman movies, there's really not. There really aren't any comic book movies being made, at least not based on characters that are are like big names. I mean, you had your Judge Dredds and your uh, barbed wires and stuff like that, but nothing like major other than Batman and of course by the 1996-97, we know what what direction that franchise was going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Arad did initially find some success with a partnership with New Line Cinema, which was a studio best known at the time for producing the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. New Line would go on to produce the first big-budget Marvel movie, uh, which was Blade, released in 1998. Yeah. And it seems a little odd to think that, we're launching this new endeavor to make big budget marvel movies by uh producing a movie starring an R-rated movie, a very gory R-rated movie starring like a D-list character from Marvel Marvel's uh stable of characters, but New Line took the chance, Marvel took the chance and it paid off and Blade made over 131 million dollars on a budget of about 55 million dollars. So Hollywood took notice of that.
3: Yeah and you can also see around this time there were uh, some TV films and you know a couple of other smaller TV projects uh short lived things that kind of set up the stage for the larger Mar- Marvel universe pre MCU with yeah. stuff like Nick Fury Generation X and then of course all of that leading to like Brian Singer's X-Men and and all of that stuff well, so Justin- it <laughs> yeah just is going to mention but i mean
1: Arod was big on the animated series of spider-man that that came out during this time the x-men series which was huge for her. yeah because oh, yeah well marvel entertainment
2: existed already at this point narod was uh, involved in that and that net nick fury movie that you're talking about the david hasselhoff one so yeah. that was written by david goyer who wrote blade and it was mm-hmm. originally written as a theatrical release and then <laughs> it ended up uh, over a series of you know for a series of reasons, it ended up getting downgraded to a made-for-tv movie starring David Hasselhoff. But uh that was originally supposed to be a theatrical release. And uh David Goyer was this. I mean, David Goyer's been like the go-to comic book guy ever since, really.
3: Yeah, pretty much.
2: So yeah, up next was you mentioned it, but up next was the X-Men, which was a property that Arad actually had some experience with because he had been the executive producer on the popular X-Men animated series that debuted on Fox in 1992. We all watched that when we were kids. Mm-hmm. There's a revival coming out, I think, later this year, right, called, like, X-Men 97?
1: I think you're right, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Nice. Uh, and 20th Century Fox would be the studio to eventually bring the X-Men to cinemas. The Brian Singer-helmed movie ultimately grossed $296 million at the box office uh, globally, proving that comic book movies had the potential to be hugely successful. So at this point, we know Marvel movies can make money. So it mm. should be pretty easy to get a Spider-Man movie made, right? Well, (laughs) if we've learned anything during the course of this episode, it's never that simple. Not when it comes to this character. See, in the mid-90s, Marvel was struggling financially. They were always kind of struggling financially. Uh, And they were riddled with debt. Uh, They were suffering through another debilitating bankruptcy. And Arad argued that producing movies based on their properties was really the only way that the company was going to survive. Uh, In fact, I've got a quote from him here. He says, movies will drive the brand. Movie companies that will make the movies will have to promote Marvel. The movie opens with the Marvel logo. After two or three movies, Marvel becomes a household name. But in 1996, a court-appointed trustee was ordered to field purchase offers for Marvel. Again, they're going through bankruptcy. So while several entertainment companies, including Sony, worked on plans to acquire Marvel, none of those came to fruition, and Marvel's bankruptcy hearings lasted uh, like three years. This is going on for a while. And in the end, Perlmuter and Arad convinced Marvel's lenders to invest in them and allow Toy Biz to assume full control of Marvel. So once they took control in 1998, Arad immediately started trying to partner with a studio to produce a Spider-Man movie. Well, he goes to Paramount. He goes to Sony. uh, He even took a secret meeting with 20th Century Fox since he had just worked with them on on the X-Men deal. But Sony in particular had a really good bargaining chip. Remember, as a result of uh the Menahem Golan selling off the rights to Spider-Man, Sony actually owned the home video rights. It was they were it was Columbia Pictures when those rights were sold. But Columbia and and Sony are the same company. So mm-hmm. they're 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 two arms of the same company. So oh, Sony actually owns the home video rights to Spider-Man already. So uh without those rights, basically what they told uh Arad was without those rights, Marvel Films is gonna lose out on a significant amount of money. They came from home video sales, from VHS sales. So Sony approached Perlmuter and Arad with a pitch. They said, hey, you should just sell Spider-Man to us outright so that we just own the rights to Spider-Man theatrical and home video. And uh, to Sony's shock, Arad and Perlmuter actually offered them even more than that. They offered to sell every single available character that they had to Sony for a total sum of $25 million. Now think about this. They couldn't sell the X-Men that were Fantastic Four or Um or The Hulk because those had already been licensed to other companies. Mm. Right. But every other character was on the table: Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, Thor, Ant-Man, The Guardians of the Galaxy, all of them. $25 million. And Marvel nice. Films offered all of these characters for one lump sum because they needed the money to get out of bankruptcy. Yeah. And Sony turned them down because the executives at Sony thought that none of the other characters had any value. They didn't see any potential in any of these other characters. They only wanted (laughs) Spider-Man. So eventually a deal was made, and Sony purchased the rights to Spider-Man for only $10 million. Which, yeah, $10 million is a lot of money, but that character has gone on to make billions and billions of dollars since then.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: uh, but and and I mean and think of the other characters that they left on the table and how many billions of dollars that Sony left on the table would that do? Oh yeah,
3: jeez.
1: I mean, depending on you know, just assume. I mean, if that, that they know what to do with them. I mean, I guess well, Sony yeah. manages it with Spider Man, so I guess I can't shit on Sony, but it wouldn't be what we know now with those characters. It seems like
2: well, here's the mm. thing. Here, here's an interesting thing, is that on the X Men movie there was a, a a guy that was working as like an assistant producer or something on X-Men right under, under Fox and when a Ar- rod worked with this guy and he liked him he liked him a lot and he actually asked the the producers that this guy was working under on X-Men he's like hey i want to see if he can come work for us over at marvel films and they agreed. They're like, "Yeah, he's a great dude. I think he would do good work over there." And they they let him out of his contract. He goes to work for Avi Arad at Marvel Films, and that guy was Kevin Feige. Oh,
0: no. of course. <laughs>
2: nice. so, so it's still possible that had this happened, and Sony had bought all these, if they're still working with Marvel Films, Kevin Feige's still there. Wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> with this deal, this deal's done. Ten million dollars, and with that. Spider-Man finally had a home in Hollywood. And in 2002, under the guidance of director Sam Raimi, audiences was finally, after all of this, after decades, would finally get to see the web slinger in action on the big screen. And that's what we'll pick up next week as we discuss the story behind Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Spoiler alert, Sony goes bankrupt. It never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Foiled by another bankruptcy damn it <laughs> And that's it guys that's the road to Spider-Man it was a it is a long road but man, yeah. what a fascinating journey it's that been a
0: long is. road there, there it is, is. that's uh, three
3: <laughs> no, we're man. gonna make
1: people who've never even seen Star Trek Enterprise hate that song <laughs> 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 Well, that's all we have for this week guys. Do you guys
2: have anything to add?
1: I don't think so. I mean, we don't. Just, I mean, this
2: is not a traditional like episodes. We don't have our further viewing or anything like that. We'll get into that next week.
1: Yeah, it's just you can totally see why we had to do this. Hopefully, that uh, there was just we, could, we so couldn't much all, backstory yeah. that we, we want to be able to jump into Sam Raimi and Spider Man when we get yeah. started. Like almost pick it up like it's the next chapter in Sam Raimi's story. Right. But yeah. how could you get there without knowing like where Spider Man's been all this time? Yeah, and mm. I mean,
2: it, and it's the rights to the character are especially the stuff that with Avi Aver, Rod and all that. Uh, I mean, going back all the way to Canon films, the rights have just been a a mess. So getting a Spider Man movie on the screen at all is an achievement. And yeah. the fact that Sam Raimi did a pretty damn good
1: job with it is even better. You know,
2: mm-hmm. uh, it's one yeah, of those fateful
1: things because yeah, we'll talk about it next week. But you know, of all the people that we've talked about so far, I mean, who could get it? Who, who seems like they could get it right more than Sam Raimi, as right. much as we know about Sam Raimi. So uh, next week, we'll find out if he succeeded. Well, if you haven't been alive. <laughs> if you haven't been alive recently.
2: Well, that's it, I guess, for this week, guys. Where can you be found on the Internet?
1: I am. This is... I have I have this is Gary Horde. at This is Gary Horde. You could you could follow uh the wrestling brand that I work for at NWA.
3: Well, uh folks, June 9th I'll be headlining a comedy show in Hiawassee, Georgia. Uh check out my socials uh for more details on that. If you like Star Trek, I will be hosting TrekFest 38 in Riverside, Iowa, June 22nd through 25th. Go to trekfest.org for details. Uh I'm also Part of Cosmic Crit, where we are currently playing through the Star Trek Adventures TTRPG. You can find them at Cosmic Crit on the socials and at Cosmic Crit on YouTube. I'm also working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the social media at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and d d beyond, as long as they behave themselves.
2: And I am at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram and Letterboxd. And uh, the show is at Cinema underscore Shock. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter we're also on Facebook Uh, you can also head to cinemashock.net to find all of our episodes as well as links to our discord our merchandise all of that stuff Uh, please remember to uh, subscribe rate review share us with all your dorky movie friends Uh, I think that this series is going to be a good introduction for people who you know maybe Joe Dorowski was a little too odd for uh, I mean that was a good introduction for a lot of people because a lot of people are into those kind of movies but if you're into more blockbuster nerdy comic book movies uh, or you have friends that are, send this episode their way or send our Sam Raimi series their way. Uh, I think it could be really fun and they might just enjoy it and they might like you a little bit better for, for giving the this show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the gift of us. The is, gift is, of us. <laughs> it's, it's the gift everyone. that keeps,
2: keeps on giving. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, until next time,
1: may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other.
0: Johnny has the keys. No Excelsior or anything? Excelsior! <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry, I keep having to pause to sniff because you a mm-hmm. bitch. I'm a
1: bitch. <laughs> only only bitches have allergies. <laughs> <laughs>